If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... <coughs> I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from Victoria Panton Bacon. Victoria's latest book, Remarkable Journeys of the Second World War, a collection of untold stories, features interviews with veterans of the conflict, from a concentration camp survivor to a Bletchley Park codebreaker. Our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, spoke to her to find out more. Right, so Victoria, um, your new book, Remarkable Journeys of the Second World War, features interviews with veterans of incredibly uh, diverse experiences of the Second World War. Um, There's a survivor of Auschwitz, there's a navigator on the Lancaster bomber, there's a member of the Home Guard, uh, there's a codebreaker also. Um, I mean, how important to you was it that this book offered a, a wide range of stories? Well, it became increasingly important to me, really, as the book evolved. Um, It did spring from my first book, which I had published, which was my grandfather's um, memoir of being a pilot in the Battle of France. 
Um, and following that, I start. I was very privileged and fortunate to meet um, a number of World War II veterans. Most of them were air crew. Most of them were RAF. Um, and there are five RAF chapters in this book, all very different to each other. Um, and obviously, I'm delighted to have all of them. Um, but I suddenly felt as I was writing up their stories that actually it, it was quite important to try and reflect other aspects of the war that I was getting increasingly interested in. Um, and it it sort of evolved as it went along. I started telling people um, when I was meeting them that I was writing up this book and people would say to me, oh, I know so-and-so or my grandma or my neighbour's neighbor's neighbour's neighbour and maybe they would like to talk to you. And suddenly I was gathering different stories and it has become what I hope is quite a colourful collection um, of different aspects of the war. Um, a variety of people, um, some in important positions of command, others who very much weren't. But this, um, somebody described it as the Bayer Tapestry of the Second World War. And for me, that was a very important description. I was very pleased to read that. It sort of made me feel that I had achieved what I wanted to achieve. And that was a good um, a good reflection of different aspects of the war without pretending, of course, that I'd managed to achieve all of it because that would be impossible. How important to you was it that um, these people were, in inverted commas, um, ordinary? I mean, is nobody really celebrated um, in your book? I mean, was your intention to tell the story of ordinary people, as it were? Yes, it, it was. This book isn't about um, medals. It's not about um, high office. It's not about um, the, the highest rank. Um, there are some who've got DF, there are the Distinguished Flying Medals, one or two of them have got, there are some with DF, um, DFCs, my grandfather got a DFC, but that's not what it was about. This book is very much attempting to be a reflection of what it was like to be part of the war. And it's important to remember that at the time, these were very young men and two women who were very, they were very young at the time, but these stories are reflective of so many. One of the reasons I felt very compelled to write them up when I was being given the stories was because I felt that each and every one was telling their story, not just so that they might be remembered, but actually so much more importantly for their comrades who couldn't tell their stories, who didn't tell their stories. These are, as much as possible, the sort of typical experiences of war. Sure. And, and what was immediately um, evident to me from, from reading your book is, is the impact that writing this book had on you yourself. Um, I mean, for example, you openly admit that you found writing the chapter on um, Maddie Gerard, the survivor of Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen, incredibly difficult. I mean, such were the horrors that she experienced. So I just wonder if you could sort of tell us what kind of emotional impact doing these interviews had on you? Yes, so there wasn't a... It, it, was, it was becoming a sort of job for me. It was something I had to remember. Once it was commissioned, it was something I had to complete, something to actually go through and 
research it very, very thoroughly using all the research tools. But but there's no escaping the remarkable journey of my own in doing in achieving this because each and every chapter was very emotional you know I really felt these amazing people were opening their hearts to me they were doing something which for many of them was very very difficult um you know they were recalling a very painful time in their lives they were looking back and they were doing they were doing it for me and each interview went on for no no interview was quite quick each one um was a day two or three of them i went back to and interviewed two or three times to get their story um it would be impossible and i don't think i could have written this book without um a sense of compassion and empathy as well as wanting to really really try and understand what it was how it just might have been um but you mentioned the Maisie Gerard chapter there I think whilst these experiences of war were so hard that one was perhaps the hardest because I almost felt I didn't really have almost the right if you like to actually be writing it down because you you can't, one cannot possibly begin to empathise at all with depravity on that scale and what it must have been like, especially as she was so young, she was the youngest. Sorry, could you give us a little bit of background to her story, please? Um. Yes, sorry, yes, she was a Hungarian Jew living in a little town called uh, oh, Lestofi in, in Hungary, Um she was living with her uncle and aunt, who she was very fond of. And um, then when she was about 13, um, she and her uncle and aunt were taken off, first of all, to Auschwitz. She lost her uncle and aunt, who she was terribly fond of. Um, She lost her best friend there. There's a description of how she was with her best friend um, at the time. And they were told one day to go one way or the next. And um, her best friend went the other way. She never saw her again. Um, and um, Maidy then went on to Bergen-Belsen. And her descriptions and the comparison of Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen, probably the way she described it to me, um, has left a very strong, clear image in my mind. Um, I haven't got the chapter open in front of me, but I think Auschwitz she described as one of the most clinically clean places she'd ever seen. She said you could hear a pin drop most of the time. There was not a scrap of dirt. It was so clinically terrifyingly clean. And she compared that to Bergen-Belsen, which was sounded so filthy and depraved in terms of the bodies lying around and that sort of thing. But it's an amazing chapter because she, like all of she went on to make a a life for herself afterwards, um, creating clothes. But there was always um, something about the colour blue. She could never create anything in blue because one of the guards, who happened to be a woman, wore blue all the time. So it's very, very, very important chapter for anyone who wants to understand the Holocaust. And, I mean, what about the the interviewees themselves? I mean, how did recalling these traumatic events affect them? 
Well, I think for some of them, it was, you know, a good and healthy experience. Um, there was an element of pride in what they did. Um, but I would say each and every interview was very, very different. Um, for example, Bill Carter's, who's, I think, chapter chapter two, and I describe his story as a musical war. I, he was one... That, I think he was the first person I interviewed. Um, so this was about four years ago when this project started. And there's quite a difference. I've seen Bill. I've kept in touch with Bill a lot, which is lovely. Um, there's a difference between a 96-year-old man and a 100-year-old man. Um, and his descriptions then were really quite vivid. Um, he was an RAF engineer in the Middle East building runways. Um, and his was a very musical war, a lot of there were a lot of music recollections and he was a very musical person and he actually sang to me quite a lot. I think he just was so grateful to have the opportunity. He documented some of his memories himself in a personal diary, but I think he wasn't expecting it to ever be read really by anyone other than his own family. But there were, you know, there were tears, there were laughs, um, there was courage. There were a lot of poignant gaps if you like when I was talking to them as they really really thought a lot of them thought very very hard about what they wanted to say next for it to be as accurate as possible. Did any of them feel any bitterness of what they'd experienced all those decades ago? I would say I would say yes sadly I wouldn't want to confuse the word bitterness necessarily with um, regret not saying you are confusing it with regret um, I think there was bitterness in terms of an inability to understand how things could be that terrible. Um, Dougie Huke is the Merchant Navy chapter, I would just mention in this. There's a very um, poignant bit in his chapter when he talks about the sinking of the Lancastria, which was a troop ship that sank off the west coast of France just a couple of weeks after... Um, no, just before France had capitulated. Um, it's the 17th of June, 1940. And um, three bombs um, hit this troop ship that had around 6,000 troops wanting to get home who hadn't managed to get home from Dunkirk and a lot of refugees from France and Belgium. Dougie's ship was one of the first merchant navy ships to go to the rescue of those who were drowned that day. Some 4,000 people died. It's it's a little known part of the war um, compared to other much more commemorative, commemorative sinkings. I mean, obviously, Titanic wasn't in the war and the Lusitania um, wasn't World War II, but these are sinkings that we remember. But I think this is why this book is important. It's drawing on um, episodes such as that which aren't so well known, which are hugely significant. Um, but sorry, getting back to your question. Yes, there's um, the Piers de Bernier chapter is very important in terms of bitterness. Um, and this was one of the most traumatic parts for me in terms of writing up this book because he he was part of a reconnaissance um, in, in in the um, household cavalry, his regiment, he was in a reconnaissance regiment, and he had to watch um, many of his friends die in their tanks 
as they were shot at after they continued into battle and the reconnaissance had been done um, that predicted the defeat he had to watch. And he couldn't, he said he could never understand why that was allowed to happen. And he was only able to recall his memory really in poetry. So there's some really beautiful poetry in this book, very, very sad um, describing that. And just quickly on this question as well, the opening chapter, John Otterwell's chapter, um, he was a, he was the Lancaster, actually one of two Lancaster um, navigators in this book. Um, very early on in his war, he was on a beach doing a training exercise and suddenly above the beach there was an enormous explosion and it was a Sunday afternoon and um, a Sunday school was blown up above them and he had to go obviously with his troops to go and pick up the pieces afterwards Um, but 26 children died that day and he said the pages of the hymn books were just falling around them onto the beach and he he just looked at me when he told me this story and just why why children so yes that was the awfulness of war and these are important to be documented somewhere, these episodes. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. She had a pile of identity cards and she said most of them were encrusted in blood and before she could scrape off the blood, she she had to scrape off the blood to be able to read the names and, you know, suddenly faces would be revealed of these dead people and she said... Every single one, I felt like I was at their funeral. I was saying goodbye to them for their families. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? 
Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Now, one of the things I've um, most enjoyed about the interviews is the way they teased out um, sort of small details, these, these, these little, little, little anecdotes um, from the veterans' lives, such as there's Peter Blackburn recalling how he was caned for removing a swastika from a dying German aircraft. Or um, John Oswell observing how on his release emaciated POWs chose to save chocolate for their families rather than eat it themselves. I mean, how important was it? Did, did you regard it as sort of giving a really rounded picture of what, what the people had gone through? Yeah, these were the, it was those little, those, well, they're not little nuggets, they're very, very important nuggets, but it was those, it was those facts that sort of crept into each interview that I felt was, were really, really important. Um, some of them were quite sort of, you know, very, very surprising things you, you can't find out from reading factual books. You're not going to get that. There's nothing wrong with a really brilliantly written factual book, but you're not going to get those little those feelings. Well, actually, really, the stuff about the chocolate, um, and you know, actually, the Fred Hooker one. I remember right at the end of his chapter, and you know, it reflected the humbleness of these people. Fred Hooker, you know, he was he fell out of his he was blown out of his Halifax, parachuted onto the ground, went through hell after being captured and interrogated, then the trauma of prisoner of war, then walked home. But the thing he reflected when he find went and when I say walked home, I mean he he did his is the story of the long march after he was released with hundreds of other prisoner of war in the middle of the night on the 19th of January 1945 when it was absolutely freezing. The Russians were on their way westwards wanting to um do their best to um, get to the Germans and they had to get rid of these prisoners of war and they were thrust out into the cold of the night and so many didn't make that journey because it was so perishing and they were so hungry and it was so tortuous and all this is described. Then suddenly at the end of his chapter, it, it is so humbling because he is so grateful for the RAF official who shakes his hand as he gets off the aeroplane when he finally makes it back to England. I mean, these are, these little, that for me isn't just a nugget. It's it's staggering and it just shows the, I think it reflects on the respect that we really need to show them. Yeah, to show such humility after going through such an experience is quite incredible. Now, this isn't the first, as you mentioned earlier, actually, this isn't the first time you've published um, Veterans Recollections of the Second World War, is it? Um I wonder if you could tell us about your grandfather, Sir Alistair Panton, and, and your discovery of his memoirs, which kind of began this entire journey. Yes. I, well, my grandfather, yes. Um, grandfather, as I reflected on earlier, was a pilot during the Battle of France. He flew Blenheims in 53 Squadron. Um, and the Battle of France was a hugely catastrophic episode for the Allies, um, it was when, um, first of all, the Benelux countries fell very quickly into German hands, um, followed by France some six weeks later, 
The battle began on the 10th of May in 1940. Um, and my grandfather um, continued in the RAF um, after the war. He um, during he during the war he was actually captured on the 14th of July 1940 and spent the rest of the time as a prisoner. Um, so his actual service in the war was very short, which I'm sure was always a sadness for him, as it would have been for all of them as prisoners of war because they knew the war was going on. They wanted to be part of it. Um, grandfather's prisoner of war stories are actually do- are actually in the are actually in this book, but written in a different sort of way, in a way that I think is quite entertaining. In a way that my grandfather would have wanted it. He describes he it, his stories aren't the first person. His prisoner of war stories they're written in the second person, which I should think gave him some element of creativity. Um, he could put in a few things if he'd wanted to. He died in 2002, so I was never able to check them with him. But he was a prisoner of war for five years. Um, I went through his records, including his prisoner of war records, his documents um, describing some of his escape attempts, that sort of thing. So these things really did happen. Um, But I found his story, his diary of being a reconnaissance pilot in the Battle of France shortly after my own father died in 2012. And when I found this rather scrappily written diary in a box of um, model Blenheim aeroplanes that my father had um, made, I first of all felt compelled to read it um, because to some extent... I don't know why. It might have been part of my emotional journey after my father died. I felt I owed it to daddy and grandfather to read it. And then the more I read it, the more I wanted to understand it and piece it together. Um, I remember visiting RAF Hendon, the library there, and they did some amazing research for me and helped me very much and actually found pages of grandfather's um, operations records books and some photographs to show me that actually what he was describing really did happen. It really was documented. Um, And during the Battle of France itself, my grandfather um, fell to the ground three times, once in a parachute, once during Dunkirk, when he was actually shot down by friendly fire, which is a very sad thing. But the importance of this book is that a bit like Remarkable Journeys of the Second World War, it reflected on aspects of the Battle of France that we wouldn't necessarily have known about. And the RAF were given a really hard time during the um, evacuation of Dunkirk because they were flying behind the lines trying to push back the enemy. So actually the troops on the beaches couldn't really see them. And there was this sad myth pervading amongst the British allies that the RAF weren't really doing anything But thankfully, Winston Churchill corrected that, I think, in the House of Commons shortly afterwards. Um, And grandfather then crashed again for a fourth time during this summer alone um, in July 1940 when he was taken prisoner. But his his account um, is, is important, and it was particularly important, I think, and I think the reason it was published and then reprinted um, was because actually it told as much as possible the whole story of what was going on in France at the time. So 
it did describe the rapidly worsening military situation. But also, it's very much about the evacuees. There's a lot of evacuee stories and accounts and respect for the French um, during that time. And grandfather's fondness of them. You know, they were kind to each other. They were supporting each other. But right from the beginning, you know this is a battle lost. And as grandfather writes in his introduction, you know, this is a story about failure. It's not about success. And we can't, you know, that's what war is to some extent. How much did you know about his story before you found the memoirs? I mean, how revelatory uh, were the memoirs? I actually knew very little about his time during the war. Um, as a family, we knew much more about my grandfather's career in the RAF after the war. He 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 did go on to become Air Commodore. He When he retired, he was Provost Marshal, so in charge of RAF security. Um uh, so and we, you know, I I knew he'd been to Singapore and he'd been commanding officer the different stations he was commanding officer at. And my grandfather was my grandfather and as a family. We were obviously you know very proud of him. He he, he did well in the RAF, but um, you know I I knew my grandfather and I think he was humbled like all of them. In spite of his sort of rise after the war, he was completely humbled by his experience in the war and probably changed by it as a man in the way they all would have been. Um, and I think probably he wrote up that story, that that part of his life, he didn't write up any other parts of his, his life. He was quite a prolific writer. Um, he wrote poems and he wrote short stories about other things as well, but he didn't write about other aspects of his RAF career apart from the war, which I'd sure was the part of him that he carried with him. How did how did you doing these interviews and your research into the war change your perception of the Second World War and those who participated in it? Um it it became real to me. It became real to me something that really happened to real people. Um, in a way that you can't just understand it when you're learning about it at school or you can't just understand it even from just watching a film, really. You know, these these were people who, you know, who looked at me in the eye when they were telling me their stories. And and then the more you read about it, the more you really understand that actually what they're telling you is the truth. And it really, really, it really, really matters. And there was immense bravery, there was immense courage, but there was also immense fear. And, you know, times when they probably walked away from doing what they felt they should have done, that sort of thing. You know, these were human beings. And we we all know, you know, we all know young people. And then, you know, I remember looking back when I was 18 or 19, you don't really, you don't really have any idea of life then. But these were people who were having to fight for their country, fight for the king, um, it, it, it's extraordinary and it's made it very, very real to me. But also some of the things that, you know, and it's like you touched on before with your earlier question about some of the poignant remarks that just sort of come out in it. You know, the importance of, um, I think it was called John Randall who rescued Maidy Gerard, And, he, you know, the significance of him saying, and it sounds very obvious, but it's actually only by understanding the sh the sheer magnitude of what happened that you think god this must never be allowed to happen again 
He said the most important lesson of this, it must not happen again. There was also a little comment of, um, I say a little comment, but one of the saddest things, because it was just something that really, really struck me, it was the um, Wally Newby story, which I should point out is the only one I, I didn't get firsthand. It's the um, memory of being a prisoner of war in Singapore, um, which was horrendous. And it was a story that Peter Blackburn had gathered. Um, he'd given to me himself. But at the end, Wally said that, um, apparently at the end, he said that he stopped really talking about it because he realised people just didn't believe him. He just got too sad by people not believing the awfulness. But, you know, it, it, it happened. There are two. There are other people who've reflected on such experiences and each experience is, is reflected in a different and important way. But, you know, we, these stories are about the truth. The, the other thing I should mention is how important and how vital it's been to me. Obviously, for every chapter, I've needed the support of the family you know, none of these chapters have been written without the sons and daughters, or in some cases, nephews and nieces, um, helping me, helping me gather the story and encouraging me when I've seen their families. Because I would never have written any of them without the support of the families and without their families wanting me to do it. In fact, now I've done it. It is one of the most rewarding things: is their gratitude that they're family members are documented in this way um and just and in terms of Wally Newby he didn't actually he's the only one that didn't know this was going to happen and his son has said thank you which is a lovely thing is there anybody else you'd particularly like to mention um one of the any of the people you interviewed for the book um I would um well all of them <laughs> I'd like to I'd like to try and mention all of them I um Pat Rourke is a very, very special chapter for me, not only because she's a woman. Her story is very important. She's the um, Enigma Code, Bletchley Park um, aspect of the story. And I was really pleased to be able to get an opportunity to mention that, given the significance of Bletchley Park's work and bringing the war to an end. Um, so she was in the Far East, is that right? But she was, ba yes, she was based in the Far East. Yes, she grew up in Burma. So she was in Burma and she was about nine, 18 when um, um, Rangoon was bombed um, just after Pearl Harbor. So in December 1942. Um, and about three months later, I think it just became too dangerous for them to stay in Burma. And she went over to India with, I think, her grandmother, and her siblings as a young girl. And um, after she arrived in India, she got a job working in a special liaison unit, which involved taking in messages from Bletchley Park. She wasn't a decoder herself, but she was taking the code in and passing it on to those who were using the um, codes to help intercept, um, I think, mostly Japanese submarines. Um, so that's a really important part of the story. But actually, her story is very, there's a lot of it that's very moving. She'd written quite a lot of her wartime memories, but also her life um, in a book herself. And some of her writing is so beautiful. Can I just read one um, short paragraph about why she felt it was important to tell me the story? And she wrote that, these are her words, after the war... 
You have to learn to live together. Remember that you are all human. Behind these bare accounted facts lies a great tragedy that can be imagined but not relived by anyone who did not walk out of Burma by the northern route. Um, here she's reflecting on the fact that her father, instead of going with her and her siblings in an aeroplane to India, and she had a long and difficult journey on an aeroplane, but his journey was far, far worse because he went over to India. It was a 600-mile walk along the Burma Road with the people who just didn't have the option of getting the aeroplane and had to try and get out of Burma just to say, stay alive. So she was reflecting on journeys that so many thousands of people have had to do and sadly today still still having to do having to escape their countries because they just aren't safe or they need a better life it, it, it she covers that aspect of going to a new place with virtually nothing um and the fear of the unknown as well here as, as of the description of an appalling journey and she just went on to write Daddy saw too many people die in pitiful conditions and Mummy, when they were reunited, said that despite his outward appearance of coping by day, he twitched and muttered in his sleep for months. You know, these were experiences that changed people. And um, finally, another, another thing she had to do after the war and these are images I still have in my mind. Uh, when they told me of these memories, she said that she took up a job after the war and her role was to sit in a little in a little room identifying and listing the names of men who died in conflict. And basically, she had a pile of identity cards and she said most of them were encrusted in blood. And before she could scrape off the blood, she... She had to scrape off the blood to be able to read the names and, you know, suddenly faces would be revealed of these dead people. And she said, every single one, I felt like I was at their funeral. I was saying goodbye to them for their families. And it, it's moved me ever since thinking about that. Yeah, it must be emotionally draining. He, hugely emotionally draining. And she talked with great pride about the work she did in the um, special liaison unit. It was terribly important and it would have saved lives. But these were the, you know, just there's a staggering enormity of just seeing those faces on those identity cards really moved me. Okay, so why do you, why do you think it's important that we tell these stories now? Why is it important that the wider public is made aware of these people's experiences? Well, I when I began this journey, um, well, my journey began, as I said, with my grandfather, um, find my grandfather's story in 2012. Um, and then it evolved into this book, which started about four years ago. And then I felt it was very, very important because really only through the true spoken word the testimony contained in books you know such as this which i think are rare um it's only through the true spoken word can we begin to get to grips and understand the conflict and this is why i try and think of it as a very important remembrance book i mean we are import asked every year on remembrance day to look back and remember but 
we we can't possibly begin to remember something we don't understand and hopefully this enables an understanding because of the real picture it gives of this very very important episode and you know also you know importantly you know we we're still going through conflict in the world today you know wars haven't finished um but i have to admit in terms of what we're going through today the very unusual circumstances we're living in you know going through this covid crisis and the uncertainty and the unknowns of today there is tremendous courage and spirit that can be drawn on from this book i didn't i i feel it's taken on an importance of its own at the moment these we owe these veterans the respect of actually reading their stories because they've been given but actually it's not now just owing them the respect um it's actually we we don't it's not that we must remember is we actually need we actually need to remember we need to draw on the strength we need to draw on people who say well i got through because you know i had a laugh with this or i got through because actually my friend was telling me i was going to get through and you know i really believed i could do it you know there is there's a courage and there's a self belief in this book it doesn't draw from the humbleness of them but it it does draw from a determination to keep going i mean this colin bell chapter i haven't managed to mention colin bell but he he talks about the absolute concentration he had to deploy during a particularly so he was a pilot of a of a mosquito um over germany um in the latter stages of the second world war over berlin and it was one of the most frightening flights he did because operations he he did because um his aircraft was being pursued by radar and he couldn't actually see them but he knew they were there he knew they were after them and he had to concentrate and concentrate and concentrate to keep this Messerschmitt on his tail. Um, he knew that eventually they would run out of fuel much more quickly than him. But he said it was so frightening because he had to fly so low um, and because it was one of the most heavily defended areas of Europe. It was terrifying, but he had to keep going. Um, and it, it, it's, it's examples of that determination that are really important. And I guess the fact that the war is um, going to soon pass out of living memory, that, that kind of gives this whole exercise added urgency, doesn't it? it? It does. I mean, this is a World War II book, so it's a historical book. But history, I don't know, might sound like a cliche. And, you know, I, I wouldn't be the first one to say it, but history is the foundation of where we are today. We can't escape it. It happened. So, you know, let's learn from it. Let's, let's draw lessons from it, important lessons, lessons with what went wrong, as well as what worked and what was right. Um, it's about the present and it's about it's about shaping the future. Um, and it's never, I don't think it's ever been more important to look back on a huge episode like that when we're trying to when we're trying to make the decisions and draw courage and especially for young people today I mean it's such a it's such a it's such a difficult time you know what's what's the harm in reminding them that actually there was a generation of men and young women there of men and women their age towards the end in between 1939 and 1945 that we're going through something completely different, but 
a lot of them got through it. And, you know, what's the harm in reminding the, you know, the students who are stuck and wondering about their futures today? That was Victoria Panton-Bacon. Remarkable Journeys of the Second World War is out now published by The History Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for the next episode in our new podcast series, The Princes in the Tower, A Medieval Murder Mystery. Music